Okay, the story that leads to Jesus. Man, it's so important that you see your Bible not as a resource manual, not as a rule book, but as a story. A story that does communicate right from wrong, good from evil. A story that does give us who we are and what our place is in this world. And it does help us understand what we're to believe and how we're to think. But if you don't know the story, then you probably will not walk away with all that the Lord has for us that's communicated through his scriptures. And so we're, we're walking through the main spinal cord of that story, which is covenant. Covenant is how God works in this world. You're just gonna have to have that framework about everything. How does God work in this world? It is through his covenant and through his covenant with people. And so we begin, God creates a good world. Who does he want in charge? He wants his image-bearing creatures who rule and he wants to bless humans. Humans make the decision to decide good from evil for themselves. It all just goes downhill, but we're not left without hope. There is a human coming. There will be a human come that is able to rule well over evil and destroy evil from its source. But to do that, it's gonna cost him his life. And so we're looking for this human. And we see how God works through covenant and the covenant with Noah after the flood, covenant with Abraham. And that it will be through this family, the family of Abraham, that that human is going to come. God wants to bless all the world but he cannot bless them in their evil. And so he picks and selects a small group of people, one family, the family of Abraham, who he will bless to bless the world because he wants to bless the world. He will do it through the family of Abraham. And if you follow the family of Abraham, you begin to wonder, why them? Have you read the stories? They're terrible. The whole plot conflict is revealed in Genesis that God wants to bless the world and rule the world through humans. But there's a problem, humans. <laughs> he wants to bless and rule the world through humans, but humans are the problem. And so we need a solution. The solution, we need a different kind of human. We need a new kind of human. And that human's going to come from the family of Abraham. And you would see how every generation is not that human right? Because just look at the number of sex scandals. It's like almost every generation. And you see how this family, like how is God going to bless the world through this family? This family is messed up. And you get to the end of Genesis and you see in a summary statement, Genesis 50 verse 20, that what humans have meant for evil, God has turned into good. And so you're looking, okay, how is he gonna bring good from this? You turn the page from Genesis to Exodus and you find like centuries have gone by and the family of Abraham is in Egypt, but now in slavery. And in slavery in Egypt, they're not able to be a blessing. And so through the first 15 chapters of Exodus, you see how God by his grace redeems Israel out of slavery and brings them to himself. He asks through the first 15 chapters, outside of trusting him, he asks nothing of them. He doesn't require anything of them. You can look at through the, even the Passover ceremony. It's an invitation that he gives them the option. You wanna participate in, in what I'm doing. There's Passover and they don't have time for that. There's so much. Okay, let me clarify this real quick. I gotta back up for just a second. 
There is so much I'm about to cover that needs a immense amount of explanation, of which I will not give you. <laughs> we have to summarize large themes here. And so if I say something that you feel like, I don't know about that, you got the source material too. Um, it's all right here, please read it. So I'm gonna try to summarize it. And if I make a statement that's odd, just go find it and see if I'm right or not. I think I'm right, otherwise I wouldn't have said it, but that doesn't mean I'm 100% right about every single thing. Okay, public service announcement over. So this first 15 chapters, God, by his grace, redeems Israel out of slavery. And you have chapter 15 is uh, the song of deliverance or the song of the sea. And you have many themes presented in that song that's it's incredible. We'll look at it briefly in a deep dive a little bit later. But one of the things is the first time the word salvation is used is in chapter 15 of Exodus. And so what is salvation and what is salvation for? The first definition of salvation comes from God bringing his people out of slavery so that they can be who he's called them to be. They can't be a blessing to the nations while in slavery in Egypt. And so he redeems them. He buys them back, gets them out of slavery and brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai where he makes a covenant with them. And so Exodus 19 through 23 and 24 depends on how you measure it. God makes a covenant of Israel, with Israel, okay? So Exodus 19, this is the preamble to the covenant, okay? So whatever the covenant with Israel's about, later called the Mosaic law, whatever it's about, it has to, its purpose is defined in the introduction, right? You don't, Right? Okay, so you don't just lay out terms without some kind of framework. So the framework for everything you're about to read is here in this introductory paragraph. Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain. Okay, real quick. God is personally present at the top of this mountain, and it is scary. There is thunder and lightnings and earthquakes and a giant cloud is over the mountain. It is scary. And God says to Moses, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Hear the tender language there. I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Because what does God want? He wants a relationship. God wants to be in relationship with humans. And that relationship is severed when they're in slavery. And so God brings them out of slavery and brings them to himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, this introduction is critical to understand why we have this covenant. What is God's purpose? Now, he's not taking a left-hand turn here, okay? These things are built on one another. God wants to bless the world through this family. Now they are larger than a family. They are a whole nation. And they're 
big. There's lots of, lots of them. And so he wants, this is a marriage covenant, by the way. If you look at ancient marriage ceremonies, it follows the same language. And so God's saying, I want to marry you. That is what's happening here, okay? He says, I want to marry you. And he, he gives them how they will identify themselves in this covenant. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, just FYI, I'm writing smaller because last service, I took up way more of this board writing bigger, so sorry. I'm, I'm doing my best using the space I have. Okay, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, if they will obey my voice. So this is the first time God is asking anything of them. Up to this point, he's done everything himself. Now for them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they're invited to obey. To obey though, they're going to have to trust him. Right? They have to trust his definition of good from evil. But he's doing that by being personally present to them. And he says, this is who you will be for me, a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom that has priests. Every nation had priests for their particular God. He's saying you as a holy nation, holy just means set apart and different. God ultimately is the holy one because he is set apart from human, right? He's God, you're not. But they are a holy nation because what does God want to do with all the nations? Bless them. But he can't bless them in their state of evil. So he makes a covenant with the entire nation to be blessed in order to be a blessing to the nations. They have to be set apart, holy, so that he blessed them. And then their purpose is to be a blessing, a kingdom of priests, kingdom. A kingdom is a group of people under a king. So these are like, we should learn this by like second or third grade. Who's king? God. Exodus 15, the last verse of that song says, it is God who reigns over the nations. So they are God's kingdom, which means they're under his rule, right? To be in his kingdom means he's under his rule, but he wants them to rule, right? And they're a kingdom of priests. Simple, what do priests do? Easiest definition, they bring God to people and people to God. That's what priests do. They are nearer to God's presence and they bring his presence to others. They reveal his image, his character, and they reveal that image to people and bring people near to God. What does God want to do with all the families? Bless them. So he's gonna take this whole nation and they're gonna represent him to the nations. And in blessing this nation, this set apart nation, they will bless all the nations, right? That is just to image him. So this whole nation will image him. 
Got it? So he says, I'm going to make this covenant with him. Then you get chapter 20, where you get the initial terms of the covenant, and we call them the 10, what? Commandments. Do you know what the Bible never calls them? Commandments. It's not that they're not rules. It's just that what the Bible calls them is 10 words. It's the 10 words. But here's the deal about these 10 words. God speaks them from the mountain to the entire nation. So the whole nation hears these 10 words because they're gonna be a kingdom of priests. God wants to communicate with them, so he does. And you know what happens? They get freaked out. At the end of chapter 20, just after these 10, they go, hey, uh, Moses, we would like for God to never do that to us again. So how about you go up and you hear God and then you come tell us what he says and then we'll do what you say. So the kingdom of priests immediately recognize they're gonna need a priest. Then you get from chapter 21 to chapter 23, you get an additional 53 commands. This was initially the law. Because it's often called, the first five books of the Bible are often called the law or the law of Moses. And you would think that you just open to any of those five books and all you would find is just a list of rules. The problem is that's not what's presented to you. What's presented to you is a story. And it starts with 10. But then they couldn't handle it, so they had Moses go up and they get another 53. And then Moses comes down from the mountain and this is their response. Chapter 24, verse seven. <laughs> this is so funny. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant. So this is the covenant, all right? 10 plus 53. The book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. S sign us up. This is awesome. We'll do it. We'll do it. Great. So Moses is like, all right, you're in. And they have a ceremony. And that's when God says, I do. They say, I do. Okay, you with me? That's the I do. So they're married, all right? Then you have what follows from chapter 25 to chapter 31. You have chapters that say how God will be present to them and it will be in his tabernacle. God will come off the mountain and be with his people because if they're gonna be his priests, they have to be near him, right? And you have like five chapters, six chapters of really boring explanations of a blueprint. So imagine having a blueprint in front of you and then expected to verbalize that to somebody. That's what you get. And you're gonna get measurements for the base pans. 
You're going to get measurements for curtains and rods and garments and all this stuff that you're going to look and go, what? Here's what you're looking for when you read that. It's a little micro-mobile Eden. You're finding Eden language. There's cherubim. There's fruit. There's trees. There's animals. Eden. So we're going to take Eden, and God is going to be present. Because up to this point, after Eden, it doesn't show God's tangible presence. So how is God going to be tangibly present to his people that he's in covenant with in the tabernacle. And you get the end of chapter 31 and you have the first time someone is filled with the spirit. A guy by the name of Bezalel is filled with the spirit and with wisdom. Do you know what for? To be an artist. First time someone's filled with the spirit in scripture, it's for art and architecture. Now, you might go, hey, wait a second, what about Joseph? That's fair, because it does say that he's filled with the Spirit, but it's from the mouth of a pagan that says he's filled with the Spirit of the gods. He's filled with the Spirit, it's just not explained exactly that way like it is with Bezalel. So just for you Bible nerds that say like, but what about, just so you know, it is there too, okay? All right. I'm taking a lot of rabbit trails. You should be at the deep dive. There's tons of rabbit trails there. Okay, so filled with the Spirit, they're gonna construct the tabernacle and God's going to be present with them. They're married. This all is gonna work out great. And do you know what's in chapter 32? It's a little thing called the golden calf. So here's what happens. The exact, this is the exact same thing. You have a young couple that gets married, a man and wife, and they're married. They obviously love each other. The man has wooed her, loves her, says, I do. She says, I'm I'm yours forever. I do. And then between the altar and the reception, she has an affair. And that's what happens. Chapter 32, Israel, the kingdom of priests, The bride of God has an affair. Like 30 days into this whole thing, Moses is up on the mountain getting the instructions for God's presence to be with his people and the people down at the foot of the mountain are breaking all 10 commandments and they go, you know what? Moses is probably dead. There's no way anybody can survive that. Let's do this. Let's make a God for ourselves and go back to Egypt. And that's what they do. They make an idol. They break number one and number two and number three commandment all at once. They have an affair before the wedding ceremony is over. That's idolatry is considered adultery. That's why the marriage covenant is sacred and holy because it testifies of the covenant we have with the Lord. And idolatry is considered adultery. It's a breaking of covenant. Get the picture. 
they can look up the mountain and see the presence of God. So one thing we know about this nation, this kingdom of priests, is that they are very human. And it, and it upsets the Lord. Now, if you already thought God was just a tyrant, angry God, this part makes sense. But if you followed the story, there's only one time really that the Lord's wrath was poured out and it was on his people's enemies, Egypt. And he's angry. Wouldn't you be? There is a righteous anger and God has it. It's the only righteous anger. We can't take our anger and assume it's righteous. Usually it's just arrogance. But he said this, I don't have time to explain this. He invites Moses, the priest of Israel, into his emotions. He says, leave me alone that my anger will burn hot. For these are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. Now, there's a lot of times you say, I just need to be alone. And the last thing you actually want is to be left alone. You want it resolved. You don't want to just fume. And so Moses gets invited into this moment where he's the priest of a stubborn and stiff-necked people, a very human people. And he says, all right, God, I get it. But don't you remember your friend, Abraham, and that you made a promise to him? And if you break that promise, don't you think all the other nations will hear about it? And then Moses goes down the mountain and sees them breaking all 10 commands. And he, he, th- he brings down the tablets and he throws them down and breaks them. The, the like corny dad joke at that point is nobody broke the law like Moses broke the law. It's a corny dad joke. It's not original. Don't blame me for that. I just felt the need to repeat it. And what happens is God has mercy on the whole nation, but he does punish the instigators. Okay? And then Moses goes back up the mountain and and has to mediate this. And this is where you get this. Chapter 33 and 34 are really beautiful, somewhat confusing, but very beautiful where Moses is invited into this intimate place where it says he saw God face to, it says he saw face to face, even though it also uses language that God says, hey, you can't see the fullness of my face, but I will let my goodness pass before you. And then you get verse six and seven of chapter 34 of Exodus, you get the most quoted verse in the Bible. Those those two verses are quoted more in the Bible than any other verse, and it's the character of God. God's goodness passes before Moses, and what he hears is Yahweh, Yahweh, Lord gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's the character of God, and he's already proven that he'll be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but abound in covenant faithfulness. That word there that's translated in the ESV as steadfast love is a Hebrew word, chesed. And that word means covenant faithfulness. He will be faithful to his covenant. He will have mercy and forgive the iniquity of a thousand generations, but 
He will not let the guilty go free, but visit the iniquity generation after generation. He'll be merciful and slow to anger, but he's not gonna let the guilty go away free. And so you have this whole idea of God's character. And then he says, all right, I will forgive the nation as a whole and I will be present to them. So then you have chapters that follow are the construction of the tabernacle, which sound like the exact same thing as chapter 25 to 31, because it is. (laughs) I don't know why it's repeated. Well, I I think I know, but it doesn't matter. It's repeated. And then at the end of of Exodus, you get chapter 40, where the tabernacle's constructed, God's presence comes off the mountain, a whole mountain, and then goes into this small, like 10 foot by 10 foot square. And he, his whole presence is there in this little micro mobile Eden. And what happens at the end of chapter 40? Moses, the priest, can't go in. Their evil was too great to where their priest could not carry that into the tabernacle. So what you have is the book of Leviticus. The first line in the book of Leviticus, I know this is riveting reading for those that are trying to do this in a reading plan. This one's a tough one. (laughs) The first line of the book of Leviticus says, and the Lord spoke to Moses from the tabernacle. So Moses is outside the tabernacle and God has to speak to Moses from the tabernacle. The first line in the book of Numbers, which is the book after the the book of Leviticus, says, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. So Leviticus was a way to get the priests and the nation to be able to be near God's presence. And I can tell you it's very dangerous. Leviticus 10 takes the high priest's sons, and they go in God's presence as if nothing was wrong, and the fire of the Lord burns them. Because when you are in the presence of pure goodness, evil cannot reside. So we got a problem. Because these humans are really messed up. But they're somehow going to have to work near God's presence. And what you have that follows through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, what you have is 550 more laws. To get you a total, 613 laws. And it is not one long list. What you have is a story of Israel's rebellion and then more laws. And then another story of their rebellion, and then more rules. And another story, and it goes on and on until you amass 613 laws. Remember, the whole thing was supposed to be 10. And then 10 plus 53. What's that telling us? They're never gonna get it by more rules. And Moses says as much. If you get to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is like the fourth quarter speech of a coach. Full disclosure, it's not very encouraging. (laughs) Moses has been with these guys for 40 years. He knows what they're capable of and what they're capable of is a whole lot of evil, a lot of rebellion, a lot of doing their own thing. 
But he gives us a little, little insight into how this whole thing is gonna have to work. Deuteronomy 6, verse three. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. Obey, do this, please, that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. Where have we heard that? That's part of the human vocation of imaging him, be fruitful and multiply. So you obey, you'll multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then what you have is a Hebrew prayer called the Shema. This one gets quoted and repeated and Jesus quotes this when he says, this is part of the greatest commandment. And so Moses says this, hear, O Israel, the Hebrew word for hear there is Shema. So Shema, Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. So if you're gonna actually follow this, you're going to have to actually love God. And you're gonna have to do that from your heart. If this is ever gonna work, it's not gonna be primarily about your obedience, it's going to be about your trust. If we're gonna be married, it's gonna have to be built on love and trust, not just obedience. But if you'll trust and love from your heart, don't worry about it, you will obey. There's so much more in the book of Deuteronomy, including a retelling of a whole lot of laws. But if you fast forward to the end, chapter 28, Moses, who's brokered this whole deal, has said, okay, when we go in the land and you, if this whole setup works, there will be blessing. But if you don't, if you don't love and trust from your heart and obey, there'll be curses. God wants to bless you. But if you continue to rebel, and if you actually read this, the curse doesn't come on disobedience, it comes on rebellion. Disobedience is embedded in this. This, all this. Disobedience is embedded. You disobey, you give a sacrifice, you move on. We're good. But if you rebel with a hard heart, a stubborn heart, you're going to bring the consequences to that stubbornness upon you, which includes exile. He predicts their exile in chapter 28. And then you get to chapter 30, and Moses says this. When you get into the land, God's gonna have to solve this problem because you guys are not equipped to solve this problem. Verse five, these are very, very important verses, okay? Deuteronomy 35 and six, whatever you do to highlight, underline, block, whatever, do that for these two verses. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possess, that you may possess it, 
and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, your seed, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. Moses recognized we got a problem. And the problem is not God, nor is the problem the rules. The problem, your heart. Your heart is stubborn, stiff-necked. And there's going to have to come a point where God, it says he circumcises your heart. So remember Abraham, the sign of this covenant was circumcision, a sign that your fruitfulness, your ability to fulfill God's covenant is marked by God. Can I leave it at that? It's marked by God. The way you're going to fulfill this covenant, your heart ain't gonna work. He's gonna have to mark your heart so that you will love. You can't, like Moses knows, you're not capable of doing this. You can't love. You're too stubborn and rebellious. You are like really human. And so there's gonna have to come a point where that stubborn heart gets marked so that from that heart, you will love the Lord your God and in loving him with all your new heart, you will live. The tree of life, you will live when you get that new heart. And then look at, jump down to verse 15. Verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. So he's, he's saying this whole setup from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 you get, it, you get another shot at this, guys. I'm laying before you good and life, evil and death. The, op the options are out there for you. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, how will we obey the covenant? Love. Obedience, even in the law, wasn't the point. The point, love. But you're gonna have to obey. If you're gonna walk in the blessing, you're going to have to obey. You can't obey because you got a messed up heart. God will change your heart, but it'll make you love him. And then loving him, you'll obey him. By walking in his ways, keeping his commandments, and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. You will fulfill your vocation of being an image-bearing creature when you can love him and in loving him, obey him. 
and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Jump down to verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him for he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. Choice is yours. There's a blessing and there's a curse. There's life and there's death. You get the choice. Yes, you're gonna need to obey because to rebel will lead to the same fate humans had from the beginning, exile and death and curse. But it's not about obeying. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart. He is your life. His presence is with you. He is your life. The rules are not your life. He is your life. So love him with all your heart. And in loving him, you'll trust him and obey him and everything is gonna be sweet. Blessing. Simple, right? He says, if you do that, you and your offspring will live and multiply. Remember, we're looking for this human who can rule and rule over evil, which implies the curse and the stubborn heart. But in ruling over evil, it'll cost him his life. And Moses is saying, listen, it is our people that can carry this through. And so fourth quarter speech, guys, the game's almost over. We're about to fulfill the promises. But you're gonna mess this up. And it's because you're terrible. You're terrible down to the heart. And you go into Joshua and you're like, all hopes are high. This should work out great. We're gonna do this. And by chapter 10, Joshua, like within a couple chapters, Joshua like, is faithless after Jericho. God does a big work and go to the small town. Joshua doesn't consult. God just sends a few warriors. They get defeated. And then the Gibeonites deceive him because he didn't consult God. So even Joshua, okay, I thought, I thought we were gonna work out better than this. And then they don't conquer all of the land. And then in not conquering all the land, it says the people followed the, the, the Lord all the days of Joshua and his generation. But then another generation came up that did not know the Lord or his work. And they did evil in his sight. And then you have this cycle where God gives them the consequences of their decisions to do evil. 
and he withholds most of it. If you look at what they earned, the curse, he withholds most of it because he's slow to anger and abounding in covenant faithfulness. But what you have in the book of Judges is a downward spiral where Israel, who was supposed to go into the land of Canaan to be the people of God and to possess it for the Lord, Judges is the story of how Israel became Canaan. And each judge is worse and worse and worse. There's a couple at the beginning that's like, hey, these aren't bad people. I mean, like they do okay. And then you get people like Gideon who can't trust God and doubts God continually. You thought he was a hero? Mm, You should read it. The one thing he gets right is he trusts God one time. And then he goes back to a city that didn't go to battle with him and he beats them. A city in Israel, Israelites, he beats them. The next judge sacrifices his daughter thinking that God required a child sacrifice because he swore an oath. When he explicitly forbid child sacrifice. The savior of Israel in that generation is so unfamiliar with God that he commits an atrocity that was part of God driving out the wickedness of Canaan. Samson, terrible, 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 terrible. And then the last two stories from chapter 17 to chapter 21 explore how great their depravity had come in idolatry, sexual abuse, The last story is how a a tribe in Israel, Benjamin, became just like Sodom and Gomorrah. If you look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which was in Canaan, and then you compare it to the last two, two and a half chapters of Judges, it's the same thing. Israel has become Canaan. But that last section is framed by a phrase. Chapter 17, verse 1, and chapter 21, verse 25 is the same phrase. And it's this, Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right according to what? His own eyes. Within a couple hundred years, Israel was just like all of humanity, deciding good from evil for themselves. And they only ended up with evil. And so what's the story? What's the author like prodding you with? Oh, well, that's because there was no king to show them to rule on how to follow right from wrong. Like the author's like, hey, reader, wink, wink. What's it saying? We need a king. We can't be a kingdom of priests on our own. We need a king to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And in the Hebrew Bible, you would turn the page from Judges and the next book would be Samuel, which is a long backstory of David. And so summarizing a lot, fast forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The first king, terrible, just like every other human. 
He's arrogant, he's faithless, he doubts God, he does it himself, and God removes him. And you get David, and he's got this really great backstory of being a good shepherd and so humble, and he was good looking and always so kind, and then never supplanting Saul and trusting God. And he becomes king, and he wants to build the temple, and God says, no, but I will make you this covenant. And 2 Samuel 7 is the covenant that God makes with David. So this is the fourth primary covenant in the Old Testament, okay? So you've got the covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Israel, and this is the fourth one, covenant with David, okay? If someone gives you a different number, like there's six Old Testament covenants, it's because creation has covenant language. It's just not, the word covenant's not used, but it is a covenant, and then God makes a promise, which can be called a covenant in Genesis 3.15, okay? So if you hear like, well, there's seven Old Testament covenants or six Old Testament covenants, that's where the extra two come from, okay? It's just the word covenant's not used with those two. So we just hold it for these four, got it? With me? Okay, public service announcement number four, over. Second Samuel chapter seven, verse 12. God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the, fr the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Just a little pocket knowledge here. Take that stripes of men and just tuck it away for next week, okay? But my chesed, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay. One of David's sons, who will be a king, because David is the king and now his sons will be king. There will be a king that will come from your line that will be the king of this kingdom. This kingdom of priests needs a king who will lead them to be the priest. They can't be on their own. You, your offspring. So this Genesis 3.15 snake crusher, you're gonna be looking for in the line of David. But to make this whole thing work, this king is going to have to have a relationship with God that is like a father-son relationship. So there will be a son of David that will also be known as the son of God. And him being king will rule forever. And he, the king, will lead this kingdom to be my image-bearing nation so that through blessing you and the nation, I can bless the world. It's gonna take, so, so this promise goes through this family, this one, hand, this one man, Abraham, then the promise goes to the whole nation of Israel, but within like a book and a half, 
we see that Israel's not going to be able to do it themselves, so it's going to get put back into one person. And so we're looking for a son of David who will build the house. What is the house that needs built? The temple. So a son of David will be a king that will be the son of God and build the temple and will be able to lead God's people to be what they haven't been able to be without that king. And this is how God's gonna bless the nations. It's gonna, it's gonna come down to a son of David who will be known as a son of God. And David's like, oh my goodness, Lord, how, how, how could you bless me like this? Who am I that you should pick me? And like he responds, fantastic for a chapter. Like two or three chapters later, and this is why I love the Bible. It never shies away from the full panoramic picture of humans. And it does not lead you to think that you can model after any one of these people like forever. There's certain aspects of David that you can model after, but I'm telling you, it's more like a mirror. As soon as God makes you a great promise, you take advantage of it. You lose focus. When the kings go off to war, David finds himself taking a nap in the middle of the afternoon. And it says, this is where the design pattern comes in, same way Eve saw the tree, took the fruit and gave to her husband, David sees Bathsheba, his men take her and give her to him. It's the same, it's the same thing. And as a reader, you're supposed to go, stop, I've seen this before. And it turns the whole thing into a spiral to where now even David's family is full of evil and corruption and dysfunction. And you think, okay, maybe Solomon, Solomon builds the temple. He asks for wisdom to know good from evil. Maybe he's the guy. Long story short, he's not. He ends his career pretty terribly. And what you have through the book of Kings, first and second Kings, what you have is the sons of David leading Israel in a downward spiral. And at the end of Kings, do you know where they end up? Exile in Babylon. Where have I seen that? The story of Israel in the promised land is a longer, more violent, drawn out story of what you see, what you've already seen in Genesis 1 to 11. And you're just wondering, is this human ever gonna come? Because I'm looking at these sons of David and thinking, these guys are messed up. Like four of them, maybe five, get like a, a B minus, C plus. Most of them fail miserably. And the way kings is marked is it would give you a king, tell you their lineage, and then say, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
the deliverer, the snake crusher, is supposed to come from this line. And they did evil in the sight of God. Okay, maybe it's the next generation. And they did evil in the sight of God. Oh, maybe it's this Hezekiah guy. Well, no, he kind of betrayed the nation and gave Babylon a sneak peek of how they can destroy the, the nation and the temple. Josiah, you think, maybe, maybe. But Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, took Israel too far down. Child sacrifice, horrible, horrible stuff. And Josiah, he's a like reformer. You think maybe, maybe this guy can do it. And then he doesn't trust God and goes into battle and dies. At that point, it's like, sorry, it's over. Exile in Babylon. When are we gonna get a new heart? When are we gonna be able to obey? And when are David's sons gonna get their act together? And that's why we'll look at some of the prophetic books next week and see how the prophets both told Israel where this is all going, but also gave them hope and how Ezekiel and Jeremiah actually played off of Moses in Deuteronomy. What we need to see is that all of this should make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because we can't rescue ourselves, we just end up exile in Babylon when we try to do it ourselves. We need a king. We don't just need a savior, we need a king who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And what we'll see, hopefully next week, if I can talk fast enough, that's Jesus. This whole thing is saying, gosh, we need a new human who can actually defeat the evil even though we've given ourselves completely over to it. Amen?